Normally I start my podcast with a catchy intro and then catch you up on some of the things I'm doing, resources that I want to share with you, all the normal podcast stuff. Today's conversation is too important for all of that. So we're just going to start. Hey friends, I'm Mark Allen Shelsky, and this is The Apprenticeship Way, a podcast about spiritual growth following the way of Jesus. This is episode 32, Pentecost, Breathing, and George Floyd. There's this worship song we used to sing quite a lot. It's simple, easy lyrics, pretty harmonies. Do you remember this one? This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. Your holy presence living in me. It's a great song. A great metaphor about longing for God. God is like air. We need air to live. When we don't have air, we go into crisis pretty quickly. Our connection to God is essential, not a luxury. Something we need in order to live, like air. I wrote this presentation for a sermon on Pentecost Sunday. Pentecost Sunday is a day in the Christian church when we remember the launching of the Christian church through the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Now, the story that Christians usually think of when we talk about Pentecost is found in Acts 2, and it goes like this. Jesus' disciples were all gathered together in one place. It was weeks after the resurrection and Jesus' final appearances. They were afraid and isolated and unsure of what to do next. And then suddenly they hear a rushing wind, and tongues of fire appear in the room above their heads, and they can speak in different languages. Peter goes outside, there's a crowd because Jerusalem is filled with pilgrims for the Jewish Feast of Pentecost. Peter preaches the first Christian evangelistic sermon. The Holy Spirit moves, empowering the disciples to reach across the boundaries of nation and tribe and ethnicity, and 3,000 people become followers of Jesus, creating a new kind of community. In that story, the Spirit shows up in a rushing wind and tongues of fire. The Greek word translated wind could equally be translated breath. The Spirit showed up as breath. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe, your holy presence living in me. Now, there's another Pentecost passage, another moment where Jesus gives the disciples the Spirit. It's quieter, more intimate. There's no crowd. This one is found in John's Gospel in chapter 20. Now, this takes place in the evening on the very same day that Mary and the other women found Jesus' empty tomb. The disciples, with the exception of Thomas, who wasn't there, were all gathered in the upper room, and they were afraid, isolated, unsure of what to do next. The door was locked. But even so, Jesus appeared, standing among them, and he said, Peace be with you. He showed them his wounds, and then before he left, this happened. This is verse 21 and 22. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Again, the Spirit comes through the breath. This is the air I breathe. Now, in the Jewish Bible, what Christians often call the Old Testament, the word in Hebrew for God's Spirit is ruach, which can be translated spirit, but can also be translated breath. 
In the Christian scriptures, the books of the New Testament, the word in Greek for God's Spirit is pneuma, which can be translated spirit and also can be translated breath. In Genesis 1, it is God's breath that gives us life, the Ruach. On the cross, when Jesus died, his final words were, Into thy hands I commend my spirit. I release my spirit, my pneuma. I release my breath back to God. See, in Scripture, one of the primary metaphors for our life is breath. Because when we can't breathe, we can't live. So interestingly, that is also the primary description of God's imminent presence with us, the Holy Spirit. Ruach in Hebrew, pneuma in Greek, spirit, breath, the words are the same. This is the air I breathe, your holy presence living in me. And so this week, as I was studying these scriptures in preparation for preaching a Pentecost sermon, thinking about the disciples being sent into all nations and the Holy Spirit and breath, that is when I saw the video of George Floyd, a black man, pressed to the pavement, with a police officer's knee crushing his neck, while three other police officers stood at arm's length watching. There was a large enough crowd that this event was filmed on multiple people's cell phone cameras from different angles. This wasn't happening in the heat of the moment where it could be justified as fear or accident. The officer put his body weight onto George's neck for almost nine minutes. For seven of those minutes, George begged over and over, please, your knee off my neck. I can't breathe. Until he finally fell unconscious and was still for another two and a half minutes with that knee on his neck. He never woke up again. This is the air I breathe, your holy presence living in me. Immediately, my social media, probably yours too, was filled with people, all white people, saying, don't jump to conclusions, we need more context, we need to wait for the truth to come out. Listen, even if Floyd was a violent criminal, justice does not look like death on the pavement under a cop's knee. And then, no arrests were made for four days, and that led to protests, and people, mostly white people, began saying, this isn't the way to get justice. And as often happens, with grief and anger and trauma, protests became shouts of rage, and shouts of rage became riots, and then it was mostly white people saying, two wrongs don't make a right. Violent protests don't solve anything. Only peaceful protests make a difference. And yet we, we, mostly white people, rejected Colin Kaepernick's peaceful protest against police brutality. We said he was un-American, ungrateful, entitled. The vice president of the U.S. walked out of a football game as a statement. The NFL ran him out of his vocation. When we rejected Kaepernick's peaceful protest, we made it clear to people of color in our country that it was going to take something a lot more severe to get us to listen. Are we listening now? Or are we just getting defensive? There's going to be a lot of blame thrown around in the coming days. There already is. 
Anger is messy. Anger and trauma is messy. Anger and trauma and crowds together brings out the worst in us. We've already seen property destruction and more violence against human beings. We're going to be hearing conflicting narratives, and it's going to be very hard to know what's really going on. But you can be rest assured of this bottom line. If the police had arrested George without violence, there would be no riots. Alternatively, if the officer who had killed George Floyd had been arrested that very day, there would have been no riots. Or, if we had listened to Colin Kaepernick and so many others who have spoken up these past years and dealt with the problem of police accountability, there would probably be no riots. This painful moment began for many of us with George Floyd's death, but we know how trauma works. An unresolved trauma colors everything, and when something new triggers the old memory of powerlessness, all that same anger and fear from the last time floods back in, and there have been many, many last times. George cried, I can't breathe. Does that sound familiar? Eric Garner cried out, I can't breathe, as he was choked out by New York police officers for selling cigarettes. And before that, Rodney King, and Abner Louisa, and Amadou Diallo, and Sean Bell, and Oscar Grant, and Michael Brown, and Freddie Gray, and Philando Castile, and Trayvon Martin, and Ahmed Arbery, and Breonna Taylor. And those are just some of the names we know because the right person was there at the right time with a camera. Before them were countless others all the way back to the thousands of African Americans who were lynched during Jim Crow, and the thousands upon thousands before that who were brutalized and killed during the transatlantic slave trade that made this country prosperous. This is the air I breathe? Friends, we have a problem. And it's not just a police officer abusing their power, one bad apple with a gun. It's not just the rise of violent white supremacists. It's not division. It's not identity politics, even though you might have been told that's the problem. The problem is that we live in a society, a country, a culture that is saturated with systemic racism. It is so deeply a part of the air we breathe. Many of us, mostly white people, don't even notice the stench. I live in Oregon. I love Oregon. It's one of the most beautiful places in our country. Oregon, this amazing progressive state, was founded two years prior to the Civil War as an exclusive whites-only state. Did you know that? Our state constitution forbade black people from living here. The clause was only removed from the constitution in 1926, not even a hundred years ago. The systemic racism is in our housing system, in our HOAs, in our mortgage lending institutions. It's in our healthcare system, where outcomes are consistently worse for people of color than they are for white people. It's in our justice system, starting as early as the placement of police officers in inner-city elementary schools. Right now, if you're uncomfortable because I've spent nearly 12 minutes talking about this, then you're experiencing the real problem. I'm not saying you are the problem. I'm saying you're experiencing it. See, something I know with profound certainty from my own emotional recovery process is that we will do nearly anything to avoid emotional discomfort. It's one of the go-to coping mechanisms of our brain. When we feel emotional discomfort, we will always try to divert the discomfort by denying it's there, by trying to explain it away, or trying to blame it on someone else. 
And so as you hear me talk about this, or as you watch the events happening in the news, as you think about what happened to George Floyd, or the protests, or the riots, and you start to deny or explain away or blame, step back and ask yourself why. If the thoughts coming into your mind are not all white people, or I'm not a part of any of that, or I've got lots of black friends, or my cousin's a police officer and he's a good guy, then you are experiencing your brain's natural tendency to avoid discomfort by denying, justifying, or blaming. Here's the problem. When we avoid the discomfort, we have no stake in solving the problem. George Floyd cried out, I can't breathe. Eric Garner cried out, I can't breathe. Black and indigenous people of color in the U.S. have been telling us we can't breathe for years, for generations. Why can't we hear their cries? Why don't we trust that when they tell us this is their experience, they're telling us the truth? I know it's uncomfortable. I know it raises big questions that seem outside our individual capacity to solve. I don't like the feeling either, but friends, we cannot avoid looking this problem in the face. I used to think it was sufficient for me to not be a racist person. I could be nice to people. I could avoid racist language. I could choose not to discriminate in my personal actions. And that was me not being racist. And I thought, if enough people could be like me, racism would just go away. I used to think it was sufficient for me as a Christian and a pastor to know that the gospel means all humans are equal before God. I used to say things like, it's a sin issue, not a skin issue, and racism is a matter of the heart. I used to think that if people would just let God change their hearts, racism would just go away. And so when people of color brought this stuff up, I either felt like it didn't apply to me, or I felt like they were calling me a racist, which felt like they were calling me a bad person. And I don't like that. I I think I'm a good person. I don't like being accused of things I didn't do. And so I would get defensive and I would stop listening. Then a few years ago, I had a startling realization. I think it was part of God helping me grow up I realized that my experience of the world is not canonical, that my view of how the world works might not be a universal experience, and that as a follower of Jesus, if I was going to love other people well, I had to listen to them. And so I started listening. And what I learned about the experience of people of color in our country completely disrupted my entire view of how life works. I found out that many of my assumptions were just wrong. I'm going to tell you one of the things that I learned, one thing that surprised me. I learned that people of color really don't care that much about one individual racist person. If a person is rude and uses racist language and discriminates in their daily behavior, that person's a jerk. And in many cases, as long as that person isn't the supervisor or the principal of the person of color, why, they can just avoid the jerk and go about their life in the same way that I can ignore someone who doesn't like me for whatever reason. But what people of color cannot avoid is when discrimination is translated into systems of power and institutions of power that deny them opportunity, justice, and even their lives. And the problem is those systems are created and sustained and maintained and justified by people like me who trust the systems, people who follow the rules, people like me who benefit from the systems. 
You see, the real issue isn't that there are racists. There will always be racists. The issue is that we keep propping up systems of racial injustice. Here's some examples of what I mean by that. I didn't redline people of color out of good neighborhoods, but people like me and hundreds of HOAs and lending institutions and insurance companies and neighborhood watch groups did that together over many years in tiny little steps that made it look like nobody was really doing anything wrong and people were mostly only concerned about property value and the safety of their kids. But the net result is that it's objectively harder for black families to get a good mortgage and to use that mortgage to buy a house in a good neighborhood. Are there racist people in the housing system? Sure, but the bigger problem is that the housing system has been structured in such a way as to make it harder for people of color to have nice places to live. I also didn't shoot Philando Castile or Breonna Taylor, but people like me in communities across the US, when they heard the news, they just sighed and said, "That's, gosh, that's really terrible. They should have complied where we talked about how one bad cop is the problem, and with all of our denial and justification and blaming, we made it look like we're happy with how policing works today. Are there racist people in the justice system? Sure, but the real problem is that the system itself is treated as if it's above accountability when it behaves in ways that clearly, demonstrably, over time, discriminate against people of color. And we act like that's okay. This is the air I breathe? No, this is called systemic racism. And it's how racial injustice happens. See, we can be nice people who would never utter the N-word and who try hard not to discriminate in our personal choices. And at the very same time, we can benefit from and support systems that oppress, all while being completely certain that we are not racist. Consciously or unconsciously, we outsource the racism to institutions and systems. And that allows us the benefits of our privilege without the cost of feeling like we're hurting other people. I know, I use that difficult word, privilege. I know it's a trigger word. I know it makes us, and by us I do mean white people, feel like we're being accused of something we have no control over, like we're being judged for the bad behavior of people we don't even know, people for whom our only connection is the color of our skin. Get it? I have white privilege. I do. Here's some of what that means. I've never feared police brutality. On multiple occasions, I have called the police to come to where I was, and it never even crossed my mind that they wouldn't be anything other than helpful. I've always believed that if I was unjustly accused of something, the legal system could be trusted to look at the evidence and exonerate me. And that meant that if someone was in jail, they were in jail because they deserved it. I walk through this world where people see me as an individual. They don't usually hold me accountable for the bad behavior of other white people. No one ever asks me to explain why white people are doing what they're doing. I never have to stick up for white people in any conversation. Now, I don't like the idea of white privilege. I don't like it at all. It rankles. I've worked hard in my life to get where I am. My life doesn't feel like a life of advantage. And a lot of people like me feel the same way. And so we hear this phrase, 
and we react in discomfort, and that discomfort is what allows us to avoid seeing how the color of our skin is not an obstacle or impediment or threat in nearly every part of our lives. I have never felt like society as a whole made it impossible for me to breathe. I have felt indignant at people of color who used drugs and cluttered up our healthcare system and take advantage of welfare, even when that view is not supported by the data. I'm sorry. I have felt superior because I'm good at English. I know how to use proper grammar, and I thought for a long time that the way African American people speak was a sign of ignorance. So stupid. I'm, I'm so sorry I wasn't aware or even willing to learn that African American vernacular English is a full-fledged dialect with its own clear grammar rules and a culture that has been in development for almost 300 years. I have felt uncomfortable around big black men. Not men who were threatening me. I had no conscious reason to feel threatened. Other than a, a lifetime of television and movies that told me big black men are dangerous. But I was nice, and I didn't use racial slurs, and I tried hard in my daily life not to discriminate, and as a pastor I told people that the gospel changes hearts, and that should be enough to deal with racism. But friends, that is not enough. When I heard George Floyd cry out, I can't breathe. I heard a cry for help. Breath is our universal need. We can't live without it. That's why scripture has tied breath so closely with the experience of God's presence. The Holy Spirit, Ruach, Numa, Spirit, Breath. You are the air I breathe. You are the air I breathe, your holy presence living in me. When we deny someone their breath, we deny them what God alone has given them. When we allow or support systems that make it hard for people to breathe, we participate in the denial of the gift God's given them. This is why conversations of racial injustice belong in the church, even though they make us feel uncomfortable. This isn't just a social justice conversation. This is a gospel conversation. When Jesus appeared in that upper room and breathed the Spirit on the disciples in John 20, he said, As the Father has sent me, so I send you. So how did Jesus describe his mission? Luke 4.18 The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim freedom to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and to set free the oppressed. Look, there is just no responsible way to read that scripture and think that all Jesus cared about was telling people to pray a prayer so that they could go to heaven when they die. Jesus was establishing a new way of living, a new humanity, a new kingdom where heaven comes to earth, and he invited, he called, he commissioned his disciples into that same mission. At Pentecost, the big one, in Acts 2, when the Spirit was poured out, the manifestation of that was that the disciples spoke in different languages. That allowed the pilgrims in Jerusalem to hear of Jesus in their own tongue, and the result of that was the formation of a single new community 
with members drawn from every tribe united around Jesus. The Spirit transcended ethnic and racial lines, and the community that was formed was a new kind of humanity where people took care of one another's needs, where they shared what they had, where they made sure everyone had enough. But be clear, be clear, those 3,000 people did not all become one race with one language and one culture. They became one diverse people united by the breath of God, the Holy Spirit. Our work as followers of Jesus is to live Jesus' commission, to be a part of that uniting, healing, new kind of humanity. Now, that means that when some of our human brothers and sisters tell us that they can't breathe, we listen. We attend to the crisis. We do what we can to bring good news, to proclaim freedom, to bring healing, to set free the oppressed, to lift up the knee on the neck. It is not enough for good Christian people to feel sad and angry when we witness race-based injustice. The gospel requires us to oppose injustice. It is not enough for us to just be not racist. The gospel requires us to be anti-racist. Jose Humphrey, a pastor in Harlem, New York, tweeted this week, As a Christian, you cannot believe in the Spirit being poured out on all flesh and harbor anti-blackness in your heart. All right, if I've done my job here, even if you don't agree with everything I've said, then, you, then you've got to be wondering, oh, okay, so then what can I even do? I can't topple institutions. If the problem is systemic, I'm just one person. How can I make a difference in systemic racial injustice? That's a fair question. But please, don't let the enormity of the question cause you to leave the conversation. Institutions, all of them, were built over time by a lot of people taking small steps in a direction. And if you believe, like I do, that the Spirit of God is inviting you to protect the breath, the lives, of your black and brown human siblings, there are steps that you can take. Now, I'm no expert in this conversation. I'm just a baby beginning, beginning to learn. But I will share with you what I have learned in the last couple of years. The first step, listen and learn. Everything starts here. I'm no expert in this conversation, but I've been listening on purpose for several years, and I have learned some things. See, if you grew up white in America, the truth is that almost everything you were taught about race is wrong. And many of the assumptions about race and injustice held by middle-class American churches are not based on fact or even a good reading of Scripture. If we care, if we believe God's calling us to be our brother's keeper, we have to listen and learn. How can we do that? Read books by black and indigenous people of color about their experience. Go to events where they speak. If you're on social media, get out of your silo. Follow them. Listen to what they have to say. Pay attention particularly to the hate and the vitriol that they receive when they say completely non-controversial things. Listening and learning will help correct your assumptions, engage your compassion, and move you to act. Second, and this one's so important for us, my white friends, interrogate your feelings. When you start listening, I promise that you're going to get uncomfortable. 
You're going to hear things that challenge you. You're going to hear things that sound like accusations. You are going to hear people talk in tones, tones and, and language that you don't approve of, and you will feel uncomfortable. Your discomfort is not the problem of people of color. The struggle against racial oppression is not about your feelings. This isn't about you. You don't need to speak to the manager. So when you feel that discomfort, when someone is expressing their frustration or their anger in a way that makes you uncomfortable, sit with it. When the voice in your head screams out, but I'm not racist. I wasn't even alive during slavery. My family was poor too. I've worked hard for everything that I have. When those voices are shouting in your brain, stop. Remember, your brain is wired to avoid emotional discomfort through denial, justification, and blaming. When you feel uncomfortable, stop, interrogate your feelings. Why do I feel this way? You need to understand your discomfort so you can grow. But your discomfort is not the problem for people of color. The third step is to use your privilege to support and protect people of color. Now this is broad, and how each of us apply it is going to look different based on our own different types of privilege, how much privilege we have, and what the season and shape of our life is like. Here's some examples. Some of us have the privilege of financial margin. We have extra. If that's you, then use some of those dollars to support people of color in whatever way makes sense to you. Frequent businesses owned by people of color. It's also a great way to get to know them. Go to their restaurants. Hire them as contractors. Buy their books. Buy their art. Donate to scholarship funds that specifically serve black and indigenous people. Donate to bail funds so that when people protest injustice, they can get out of jail. Use some of what you have to bless people of color, to serve them, to lift them up. Some of us have the privilege of influence. We're leaders. We're on boards and committees, school boards. Maybe we have a social media following. If that's you, use your influence to lift up and serve people of color. Amplify their words on social media. That means retweet them, retext them, share their Facebook posts. With credit, tell your friends who don't know them, hey, listen to these people. What they say matters. Share the books that you read. Listen in on their discussion of political things, even when you disagree. If you're an event planner that's responsible for bringing in experts or speakers, bring in experts and speakers that are black and indigenous people of color. Now, for many of us, the most significant influence we have is the influence we hold over our friends and family. Take the courageous stand in your circle that you will not let racist language or actions stand without comment. You can't control what other people think, but you can say, that's not okay here. Be loving. Share your honest struggle, but be clear. What we know is that racist behavior is nurtured in social cultures, and we have the ability to change the culture. Now, if you're white, then you generally have the privilege of bodily safety. Much of the time, in public spaces, your presence isn't questioned, you aren't seen as a threat, and you're not at risk. Not always, and not every person, but much of the time. So when you are in public spaces, be mindful of this, and use your privilege as a shield. The easiest way to do this is to make the commitment to be a witness. When you see a person of color approached by a police or authority figure in any way, just stop and be a silent witness. Don't assume that if the police are stopping someone, they must have a good reason. That is one of the myths we were taught growing up. 
peacefully observe what's happening. If the interaction escalates, videotape it on your phone. Verbally invite other people around to stop and be witnesses too. And if nothing happens, then you get to see something amazing. You get to see a police officer interacting professionally with a person of color. And we all need to see more of that. Now, there are lots of other ways to use your privilege to support people of color. But I want to mention just one more. If you're American, then still, at least at the time of this recording, you have the privilege of voting. We're still a democracy. And if we're going to end systemic oppression, it's got to be because we change the system. And that starts with voting. Now, I'm not going to tell you how to vote or what party or who to vote for, but I am going to tell you how I'm going to vote. Not who I'm voting for, but the method by which I will determine my votes. I have been convicted in this last couple of years that other-centered, co-suffering love is the nature of God and the guiding ethic for followers of Jesus. And I've wondered how to apply this principle to voting. It's hard. Voting is complex. Politics by nature is about compromise. There's no perfect candidate. There's no perfect platform. There's too much information to digest. So how do I pick? Here's what I've started doing. I listen to the voice of black and indigenous people of color, particularly women, to see what their consensus is. Now this requires listening over time because no group is monolithic. But in general, if many women of color are for or against a candidate or measure, there's a good chance that that vote will serve the common good and even ultimately be good for me and my family. Quickly, there's a number of biblical principles behind the idea of using your privilege to lift up and protect people of color. First, biblically, you're a steward. Everything you have been given comes from God and is meant to further God's purposes in your life. If you believe that the Spirit of God opposes racial injustice, then it is God honoring and obedient to use what you have been given in this fight. Second, you are your brother's keeper. Scripture makes clear from Genesis to Revelation that we are called to stand with the oppressed, to fight for those who are ignored. And Jesus tells us in Matthew 25 that the way we tangibly serve those around us who are marginalized is a direct expression of our love for Him. Third, the Holy Spirit always leads us toward freedom. Jeff Holesclaw, a vineyard pastor in Michigan that I follow on Facebook, wrote these words this week. He said, The pouring out of the Spirit at Pentecost and all the historic outpouring since gathered people together, crossed race and gender lines. Pentecost is about freedom, not fear. The Spirit of the Lord brings freedom. If we want more of the Spirit, then we must act in line with the Spirit, the Spirit of freedom, and we must stand with all who live in fear and actively overcome the causes of that fear. Friends, breathe deeply. Feel the air rush into your nostrils, filling your lungs. Then relax and let your breath exhale. Are you thankful you can do that? Breathing in and out? That breathing is universal. The breath we share with all our human siblings is a fundamental, non-negotiable gift from God. And in the same way, the Spirit is moving in and out, among us, within us, drawing us to see each other, to hear each other. The same Spirit that binds you to Jesus Christ is the Spirit that draws all humanity and binds you to them as well. 
When George Floyd cried out, I can't breathe, he was joined by a chorus of his ancestors, and the Holy Spirit was in that chorus, challenging us, interceding on George's behalf, begging us to lift that knee. The Spirit is calling us now to live out our mission of other-centered, co-suffering love that embodies Jesus in this fearful world. And that includes you and I taking the steps we can to stand against racial injustice. We have to change the air we all breathe. The Spirit of God is the air that's needed. I'm going to close with a prayer written this week by Drew Brown, a black musician and worship leader from Canada. And this will stand in place of the normal benediction that I end my podcast with. Holy Spirit, breath of God, breath of life, we mourn to see someone taking another's breath away again and again. We cry out for justice. We march for peace. We yearn for this world to be healed and made whole. Holy Spirit, guide us from hatred to love, from injustice to justice, from violence to peace, from chaos to harmony. Today, we celebrate God in us. Help us to see in each other the face of God and love others in that way. We pray for unity, compassion, empathy, and the resolve to burn down racism, oppression, white supremacy, patriarchy, and hatred, and let something more beautiful rise from the ashes. Amen.